Acts chapter 17. I'm going to be reading Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him, and they brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Well, therefore you worship is unknown. This I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and of earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of, of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. And yet, He is actually not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed His offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now... He commands all people everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this, He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Blessed is the reading of God's holy, fallible, inerrant, 
historical and by his grace penetrating word to our hearts and minds. Let's pray. Father, by your grace, allow me as a pastor, as a teacher, to take us to the Areopagus, to that council, to Athens, and thus to the gospel that we who are being saved never tire of. Be present with us this morning. You know what each and every one of us need. Provide it in the work of your Holy Spirit, I ask, to the glory of Jesus. Amen. The gospel of Jesus Christ is so deep, it is so profound, that it is far above and beyond the intellectual class if they do not have the Holy Spirit. And that same gospel is so clear and it is so simple that a child can grasp it and be saved by hearing that Jesus Christ died for their sins and God raised him from the dead. There is only one gospel. One gospel to the sophisticated, civilized intellectuals of the world, and it is the exact same gospel to the uncivilized tribes people who never developed a written language. The gospel, it's not against reason. It's reasonable. Paul himself reasoned with people from the scripture about the gospel. But no human being, despite what the precious C.S. Lewis says, no human being can ever reason themselves all the way to saving faith. Because that is a heart issue. Unless God miraculously brings a sinner alive by the Holy Spirit in the reasonable proclamation of the gospel, unless that happens, they will never believe so as to be saved. And that's what we did see last week in Thessalonica, in Berea. But we also saw last week how the Apostle Paul approached the audience there as he goes into the synagogue. And what does he do? He starts with the Bible. That was the common ground with the fellow Jews and God-fearers. They love the Bible. So he started there and reasoned from the Scriptures. And now, having fled Thessalonica and Berea, he sails way down south. Now he is in the city of Athens, Greece. This is the hub of philosophical thought. This is the home of Socrates 
and Plato and Aristotle 400 to 470 years earlier. It was the place that took so much pride in intellectual discussions and debates about life, meaning, justice, truth, beauty, and essentially the God issue. Athens is a playground of many different philosophies, particularly at this time that Paul is there in the first century, Epicureanism and Stoicism. Epicureanism was founded by Epicurus around 307 BC. He was essentially a materialist. Only thing that really does matter is matter or things. There's no afterlife. And he didn't deny the gods, the Greek gods. He just believed they in no way affect what we do down here. They're totally disassociated from this world if they exist. And the core of this philosophy, this way of life of Epicureanism, it was like all of us. We're seeking happiness or the absence of pain. We're seeking to be less miserable and the way to go about it was not radical hedonism. Whatever you feel like will bring you pleasure, do it. Because they realized that causes more pain, more disappointment. And so Epicureanism was about living modestly. Gaining knowledge, using your intellect to understand the world. And therefore, limit your desires. This is the path to happiness. And there was Stoicism, founded by Zeno, about 290 B.C. in this system. It says the path to happiness is essentially accepting fate. Whatever happens, accept it. Don't be battling against it. In other words, don't be controlled by your desires and let them drive you and be disappointed again and again. Or don't be controlled by fear. Just accept. And you do this by using your mind, using your intellect. Understand nature and then find your place in it and just live according to what nature dictates your life circumstance. That's Stoicism. All right. Here's Paul. He's in Athens. He's hanging out, waiting for Silas and Timothy to come up. It's going to take weeks at least. And he gets very grieved, noticing all these idols, these statues, these temples, and these altars to offer sacrifice. One ancient writer about this time says, you go to Athens, Greece, you're more likely to run into an idol than you were to another human being. There are about 10,000 residents in Athens. That's even smaller in El Segundo. But there were 30,000 idols in Athens at this time. And so Luke tells us, Paul, he went to the synagogue. There was a Jewish synagogue. So obviously he goes in there on the Sabbath to reason with the fellow Jews over the scriptures that the Christ must suffer and die. And then he says, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you, he is the one. And then throughout the week, he also preached the gospel to the pagans at the farmer's market. That's when you pick up at verse 18. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, Paul. And some said, 
What does this babbler wish to say? And it was derogatory. Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. And so Paul's audience are at its core mainly Stoics and Epicureans. They have no background really in the Scriptures and in the Bible like the Jews, so that is not his starting point. And so what we see Paul do is that he adapts his approach. He does not adapt the gospel as so many American evangelicals tend to do. He adapts his starting ground, his approach to fully preaching the only gospel that can save sinners. So let's go back to ancient Athens. As Paul's brought before this council that is called the Areopagus. These men were responsible as elders of the city for exercising authority over the religious happenings and the education of Athens, and they want to hear what in the world are you teaching. And so notice first, Paul begins with common ground. He's given the floor, and he opens up with his own observations of their city. Verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this description or inscription to an unknown God. That's his opening. That's where he comes in. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Now, now, with all the, the Greco-Roman gods, there were altars to make sacrifices. Why? In order to appease the gods' anger whom you may have upset. I mean, you want your crops to come full. You don't like drought. Let's appease the gods. You don't want hurricanes. You don't want earthquakes. If you're going to take a voyage on the sea, you want to make sure Poseidon is, you know, on your side. Offer sacrifices and... Just in case there are gods we don't have names for or even know about, let's cover our backside. Here's one. To an unknown God. And so Paul essentially says, okay, we got common ground here. You admit you don't know everything, and you don't. Because I'm going to fill you in on this unknown God. The only God. 
And whether the Apostle Paul is preaching to Jews, whether he's preaching to the uneducated or to arrogant intellectuals, he always brings them to the one true Creator who is supreme, holy, glorious, perfect, just. And that reality then shines the light on every hearer's sin. Start with verse 24. Here he goes. The God who made the world. He doesn't quote Genesis 1-1, but there it is. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Everybody, including intellectual philosophers, need to learn the basic fact of life. God is. He is God. And they are not. Whether back then in Paul's day in Athens or today, self-proclaimed intellectuals love to sit in judgment upon God. Upon the God question. That's a nice topic. Let's discuss theism or atheism or theodicy, the problem of evil if there is such a God. And then we'll go have a glass of wine and dinner and do it again next week and next month and next year. And God is not impressed and he doesn't respect it. He does not respect those who take pride in the gift of an intellectual capacity or a high IQ. And neither does the Apostle Paul. So he begins with a fact. The God who made the world. And everything in it. That God is utterly different if you understand the Greek gods. Who are so much a part of this creation, really. Who come into being at a particular time. Oh, not the one true God. The God who made the world and everything in it. And so Paul begins with what is obvious to any honest thinker. God is. And if you're a thinker, his implication is, then you know the only obvious conclusion from that is that because God is, that's why there is anything else. Even you philosophers that I'm speaking to. And not only that, since God created all that we are and all that we see, that means He is not part of 
the creation. He is transcendent to it. And that's why he goes on to essentially say, that's why it is stupid to think that you could make a temple in an idol in order to contain God. He tells them it is irrational, non-logical, to think that God is in need of anything that any of us creatures could do. And then God would say, thank you. I had a need there and you met it. I'm so happy about that. He says that is irrational. He's the creator. We all are creatures. He tells them your very life comes from him and it moment by moment as we sang this morning depends upon him see it the God who made the world and everything in it being Lord ruler of heaven and earth he does not live in temples made by human beings and nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Every single one of us in this room suck in air, breathe out, suck in air again only because God wills it. Our days, indeed our hours, every breath, the millions of breaths that we will take, every one of them is numbered. And when we die, we'll stand accountable before the one True God. He not only gives life moment by moment, but as Paul says, He gives all things. If you're fortunate enough to have your mind working, some of us as we get older fear, at least that memory part. That ability to reason and to compute is a gift right now from God. The clothes you have on are a gift. To the skills that you have that enable you to make money, to the money itself that you have stored up, to the shelter you'll go home to, to the classes you take in school, all come from God. He Himself gives to all mankind life and breath and all things. That's the God with whom we have to do. Whether we are a Christian, an atheist, a stoic philosopher, or a secular agnostic intellectual, God is. To a self 
made so-called intellectual who thinks he or she stands over the issue of God's existence in order to discuss it and judge such issues, Paul already has angered them. He has already offended them with the truth. Paul, in essence, is saying, you who have nothing whatsoever to give to God, think that you can? You think you're wise and smart? You're clueless. God is not now, nor is He ever helped or enabled or benefited by anything any human being can ever do for Him. He is absolutely self-sufficient. He's the source of everything. As Paul concluded, Romans 11, for from Him and through Him and back unto Him are all things to Him. And Him alone be all the glory forever. Amen. And so Paul's proclamation of God's utter sovereignty over all things even becomes clearer in verse 26. And he, God, made from one man, here he is again. He's preaching Genesis 1 and 2. But, but he doesn't quote it. He's not in the synagogue. But God made from one human being every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Having determined, that's God doing that, allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Now he knows these Epicureans in the audience. They're very much like the deist of the 17th century. Who, okay, yeah, there's a God, but he created and then he just disappeared and he has nothing whatsoever to do with how the world goes and how it turns. Providence is just a myth. That's essentially what the Epicureans believed. And Paul goes right after that falsehood. He says God is involved in the boundaries and in the time period. Of all kinds of people groups. Oh, and by the way, you Greeks who take so much pride that you got words for those who don't have a civilization like you, and you call them barbarians, you racist. You and all of us come from one man. So you think about history. I mean, to tell history, history is essentially told through warfare. One nation, one people group, one village displacing another time and time and time again. And Paul attributes it ultimately to God's determination. Yes, there were peoples here in this land before the white man from Europe came here and did evils. 
But this is the history of the world and of every land. Study that island called Great Britain. It's not the same people as if they were never invaded. This is the way of the world. You read the scripture, it's crystal clear. God says to His own chosen people, Israel, now southern Judah, and He warns them, I am going to take another nation, Babylon, and I'm going to use them as my sword to displace you, kick you out of Judah and Jerusalem. But what about them? They're sinful too. Don't worry about them. I'm going to deal with them next with another nation. This is the God that Paul preaches. This is the God with whom we have to do. But now, notice, this is all leading up to Paul's purpose clause. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place in order that... Here's the call. They should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. (coughs) Now, Paul's point is the same point he makes in Romans 1 where he, he shows that all of God's creation makes it Obvious that God exists. This is what he writes in Romans 1. For what can be known about God is plain or evident to them. To whom? To to human beings. To all of us. Greeks or Jews or barbarians. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Why, why, Paul? Because God has shown it to them. Huh? What do you mean? He explains. For God's invisible attributes, for God is not part of matter, He is not visible, He is not physical, But God is God, and His invisibility, the attributes of His very being, namely His eternal power and His divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. How? In the things that have been created. So that they, all of us human beings, are without Excuse. But the Greeks did not seek God in such a way that they would find Him. Well, Paul tells us in Romans 1 why. Because they're sinners, unrighteous. In the unrighteousness of men, who, verse 18, by their unrighteousness, Suppress, push down the truth. They don't want to see it. 
you don't want to see it apart from the grace of God. And so Paul is declaring to them, you idol worshipers, you self-proclaimed wise philosophers, you don't know the one true God because of your sin, because of your unrighteousness that causes you to suppress the truth. You do not actually seek why? This is what Paul goes on to say in Romans 1 when he says this now. For although they, all of us human beings in our natural state, apart from the grace of God, for the, although they knew God, intellectually, you just know it's there, it's there, it's there. It's why it's always the God issue throughout, throughout humanity. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. Or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. And their, their thinking, their intellect became actually ineffective, useless, futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Oh, that's not the end of it. Oh, oh boy, they may write a lot of stuff. As he goes on to say, claiming to be wise... They became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for idols, for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. No wonder there are 30,000 idols in Athens. But Paul was proclaimed there's only one God. And He's in absolute sovereign control. In order that all peoples, including you Greeks, should seek God. And perhaps feel their way toward Him. And find Him. And Paul's point is not that fallen human beings in their sinful, natural state actually seek for God and find Him. Romans 3 clearly refutes that idea. Paul's whole point is that even though all people are in fact utterly dependent upon God for all things, nevertheless, all of us sinners have ignored Him. Have exchanged His glory for something within the creation as our God. As that which we look to to really bring us true happiness. That's where He is stabbing this knife. And then Paul Far, far from all these Greek gods having counsel all the time over on Mount Olympus. Now he gets to the one true God's omnipresence. Look at the end of verse 27. And yet, he is actually not far 
from each one of us. For in Him we live. And in Him we move. And in Him we have our being, our very existence. And so again, Paul finds common ground. Because what he just did, he cited one of their poets from the island of Crete almost 600 years earlier, and they know this line. In Him we live and move <coughs> and have our being. And Paul says, I got you know what? I agree. I agree with Epimenides. Why? Because it's true. One true God is without beginning. He is eternal. There was when there was nothing other than God. And then, as Paul was proclaimed to them, this God created all that is not God. Think about it. Okay? That means there is no other place for that creation to exist other than in God. There's no other place for you as a creature to exist other than in God. If God is eternal and omnipresent, and He creates something that is not God, where is it? Over there? Where God's not? It's an impossibility. And this is why it is terrifying to die in sin without having come to Jesus Christ who bore the wrath of God against my sin as we sang this morning. For to live condemned and guilty with your sin apart from Christ forever is to live in God in that state and His presence. Not the presence of His glory, but the presence of His holy justice. There is no escape from the presence of God, for in Him we live and move and have our being. And then Paul, he cites the poet Eratus, 300 B.C., we are indeed his children and his offspring. So Paul again, using common ground, is using this rhetorical tactic of quoting your opponent's sources in support of your point. And that's what he does. And then he applies it in verse 29. Now that you got this. Therefore, this is, the, this is really the logic. Therefore, having said this, being God's offspring, 
We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. An image formed by the art and the imagination of man. If you just slow down and pay attention, it's shocking what he does. <coughs> he just said to them straightforwardly, don't you see how ludicrous it is to make images? All these 30,000 idols here in Athens. He is telling them, call yourself wise. Idolatry is absurd. It is intellectually absurd. And unless... We, in our day, say, yeah, yeah, of course. You know, <laughs> that is kind of stupid, making statues and offering animal sacrifices to the statue as if it is your God or the way that you communicate with a God. Yeah, that is dumb. Unless you go there, Paul sees that we are all idolaters at heart. That's the essence of sin. Then he saves some of us. And as indwelt by the Holy Spirit, truly born again, we're still sinners. So listen to how Paul writes to the church who are being saved by Jesus Christ. He, he says this in Colossians chapter, where did I, where is it? The heck are you? Anyway, he says, put to death within you covetousness, which is idolatry. So even we battle with idolatry as Christians. The, those desires that we look to more than looking to God to be our contentment. Those are the desires, the sinful desires, the covetousness that Paul says, put to death. Because idolatry is the essence of self-deception because it puts something, anything in the place of the one true. God. And if we've been Christians long enough, I think in our prayer time alone with God, we could admit that there are times where we're angry at God because of idolatry, because of what I so desire, He didn't give. Pull away. And he's merciful. Put to death. Covetousness. Which is idolatry. The worldview today of atheistic Darwinism. Evolutionism. It's idol worship. 
It's putting forward a, a false view of reality in order to replace the one true creator who ought to be worshipped. In Athens, back in Paul's time, or in our country today, there is a worldly, prideful, arrogant wisdom that is utterly idolatrous. The Apostle Paul declares in 1 Corinthians 1.21, For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. Therefore, it pleased God through the foolishness of what we preach. Christ crucified. It pleased him through that to save those who believe. The root sin of those intellectuals in Athens that Paul is speaking to in the Areopagus or the intellectual class today, the root of it is pride. And that pride shows itself in what we read next. Start with verse 30. And then Paul says now, the times of ignorance before God sent His Son into the world to accomplish salvation and now send the gospel out. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now, he commands all people everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a human being whom He has appointed. And of this, He has given assurance to all by raising that human being from the dead. And then the jeering starts. And then they cut him off. Because he mentioned a physical resurrection from the dead, which Greeks in their philosophy, particularly Platonic, totally hated. And that is a prideful, close-minded, response. And it mirrors the non-Christian intellectual community today. And so notice here in Athens, center of old paganism, philosophical thought, Paul did not pull any punches. He did not try to be seeker-sensitive to these prideful philosophers. He called them ignorant. The times of your ignorance is what he means. I know you got Plato, and I know you got Aristotle, and I know you got, you know, Epinamendes, and you can go on and on, and Thales. 
on the greatest issue of life. You're a know-nothing. He pulled no punches. He called them ignorant of ultimate truth and thus called them to repentance and faith in Jesus. The times of ignorance God overlooked, not anymore. Now he commands all people, including you, to repent. As I began this sermon, the gospel of Jesus Christ is so deep, so profound that it is far beyond the intellectual class if they do not have the Holy Spirit. And that same gospel is so clear and so simple that an eight-year-old can grasp it and love it and be saved by the hearing of Jesus Christ, crucified for your sin and raised from the dead. So the Apostle Paul, he may come at differing kinds of groups, trying to find common ground. I become all things to all people so that by all means they may be saved. I want to know something about their background. Where's your knowledge base? Where are you coming from? What do you worship? That's all fine and dandy. But then he does not change the gospel. He always gets the gospel clear. And he gets it in. And he did hear again. He preached to them what is so essential. The doctrine of God. His otherness. Not part of creation. His thus holiness. Transcendence. His justice. He's going to judge in righteousness. He preached the doctrine of God to them. And he preached the doctrine of mankind to them. You, my audience, he says, you're sinful. You're on a collision course of destruction on Judgment Day. That's what he told them. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge every one of you and the whole world in righteousness by a human being whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance by raising him from the dead. And he preaches the doctrine of redemption in Jesus Christ, the one who's raised from the dead. And that's where he's going next. But evidently, according to Luke, he got cut off because he who was raised was killed. And he's going to go there and he's going to talk about, you see how you try to appease these gods who are no gods at all? The one true God became a human being in order to slaughter his son and appease his true wrath against you. But he was shouted down before he got there and it breaks up and certainly many, I want to hear more, and he talks to them and he gets the whole gospel in. So what we need to notice then is we're closing. They did not all mock him. Some didn't. And the reason is 
because God has his chosen people. And his chosen people become a manifest when they hear the gospel of salvation. Look at verse 34. But some men joined him and believed. Look at that. Among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, the Areopagite. He's one of these elders. He's part of the council. And a woman named Damaris and others with them. Well, how in the world did that happen? The same way it happened we saw last week. They came to faith in Jesus for the exact same reason some of the Jews and many of the Gentiles in the city of Thessalonica came to faith in Jesus. God chose them from the foundation of the world and then in the preaching of the gospel by the Holy Spirit's power called them. Remember, after Paul preached in the city of Thessalonica, he's chased out, and literally within four to six months, he writes a letter to them. And this is what he says to the church there who believe, who are Christians now. For we know, brothers, that God has chosen you. And then he tells us how he knows. Because our gospel came to you. Well, yes, it came to us, but it came to all these unbelieving Jews who are persecuting you, Paul, and hate your guts. I know. The gospel came to both parties. But we know you're chosen, and they're not. And the reason we know that you're chosen is because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. And with full conviction, you were utterly convicted of your sin and of the truth of the good news of Jesus Christ by the Spirit. The only way intellectuals can be saved is the same way an illiterate, uneducated person can be saved. By hearing the clear, unambiguous gospel of Jesus Christ the power of God's mercy coming upon them in salvation. And that's why the Apostle Paul declared in 1 Corinthians 1.18, and for those of us who believe, hear it. For the word of the cross, it is foolishness to those who are perishing but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And that is why we who are being saved by such personal choosing, such glorious mercy toward us, we sing. And now all glory to you. You alone are God. 
You've saved us through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. For you are able to keep us from falling away. You bring us into your presence with love and joy. All power, authority, all splendor and majesty are yours from the beginning and evermore. Holy Father, oh, may we sing these words by the moving of your Holy Spirit in our souls as we glory in such a great salvation. For you did not spare your own Son, but you sent Him to come and become one of us forever, to suffer and to die, and to rise as our King immortal. Oh, Lord Jesus, we love you. And we thank you for such a wonderful salvation.